This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's episode is brought to you by Kronos. Kronos provides HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support, motivate, and engage them. They put HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. Learn more about Kronos HR, payroll, talent, and time at kronos.com slash hrswagger. That's kronos.com slash hrswagger. This February 17th is President's Day, and those who know me are all too familiar with my annual rant about this meaninglessly generic holiday. In case you're not familiar with the history of it, America used to have two separate presidential holidays in February, to celebrate George Washington's birthday on the 22nd and to Abraham Lincoln's birthday on the 12th. But then, the Uniform Federal Holiday Act of 1971 sold out old Abe and George in order to give Americans a three-day weekend, resulting in the bland catch-all holiday, President's Day, which is intended to salute all of our 45 presidents. Now I ask you, does Abraham Lincoln deserve to be lumped in with James Buchanan, who all but paved the way for the Civil War? Is it right to give equal honor to both George Washington and the wildly corrupt and incompetent Warren G. Harding? Of course not. George Washington deserves his own holiday. And you know who agrees with me? Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's doing her part to reclaim President's Day for the father of the nation as executive producer of Washington, a three-night television event airing on the History Channel over President's Day weekend. Washington will explore the full arc of his journey and weave together dramatic live sequences, excerpts from Washington's letters, and insights from a roster of notable experts, historians, and scholars to tell a very personal story about the evolution of one of history's most iconic leaders. And today, Doris Kearns Goodwin returns to the podcast to discuss why she wanted to go beyond the highlights of Washington's life to explore the real man, foibles and all. Doris shed some light on the long-held personal grudge that led Washington to join the American Revolution, the intense ambition that drove him to succeed, and how owning and exploiting slaves became essential to that success. Doris talks about going from being chained to a computer as a biographer to the more collaborative process of filmmaking. She shares some observations from watching Steven Spielberg on the set of Lincoln, and she debunks and confirms some common legends about our founding father. Coming up with Doris Kearns Goodwin in just a moment. Doris Kearns Goodwin is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream, No Ordinary Time, Team of Rivals, The Bully Pulpit, and Leadership in Turbulent Times. This beloved historian has spent her life illuminating some of the greatest men who ever sat in the White House, from Abraham Lincoln to Teddy Roosevelt. And now she's bringing our first president to the screen as executive producer of Washington, a three-part miniseries event that begins Sunday, February 16th, at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on the History Channel. 
Doris Kearns Goodwin, welcome back to the show. Oh, hi, Ben. I'm so glad to be with you again. It was so much fun the last time. Yes, and I remember when we last spoke, you told me that you had just started your own production company to get into movies and TV, and now here you are with your first project. What made you want to jump into a whole new medium at this point in your career? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I think what happened is I'd had such a good experience being able to be part of the Lincoln movie because Steven Spielberg was so generous to Mm -hmm. have that, and Daniel Day-Lewis became my friend. And then I got involved as a consultant in All the Way about LBJ with Brian Cranston. So a a good friend of mine who we've been working together for 18 years decided to form a movie company called Pastimes Production, Beth Lasky and I, and we were approached by history to get involved as executive producers on this George Washington miniseries. So it was the first big project that we did. And it Mm -hmm. was turned out to just be a joy of working. It's a collaboration with the producers, with the history people, with the interviewees, and and just to be able to be involved from every step along the way, from the writer's table to the rough cuts to the interviews to, you know, going over the scripts for the filming to the final cuts, the locked cuts. I now know all this stuff that I didn't know before. (laughs) And it's a wonderful medium, I think, the miniseries documentaries are. Sounds like you were very hands-on with this project. So you were on the set and making script changes, casting decisions, and the whole deal, huh? No, we weren't. I wish we'd gone to the, to Romania. That That's the one piece that when we do the next thing, I think for sure, we'll make sure to go for the actual filming of it. But we, we know we worked uh-huh. on the scripts before that and you know saw the changes after. So they really included us at every step along the way, which was mm-hmm. great for us. We learned so much. And like you said, you were a consultant on Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. And I want to say that I think I heard that you have another project in development with Spielberg. And you also worked with another guest of the show, Jay Roach, on the film All the Way. Have you gotten any advice from these directors or anything that you've observed that you've been able to apply as a producer now? Well, you know, I think the most important thing is is what makes a good leader, is what makes a good director or a good producer. It's huh. mo- emotional intelligence. You know, just mm-hmm. the way that I watched, you know, Stephen handle the actors and the costume designers and the all the, you know, thousands of people involved in the making of Lincoln, you know, keeping calm and giving them credit and taking responsibility if something went wrong. All the things mm-hmm. you want in a leader are true. You know, and similarly, that's the way we hope that we've been able to deal with teams of people on this. I mean, there's um, Rail Splitter Company that was the production company, and then there's, you know, dozens of people from the History Channel. And then there were all the people that, some of whom we were able to recruit who would be interviewed for this and making sure that they, you know, had whatever they needed for the interviews. So, and then watching the process develop. So I think it Mm -hmm. is that emotional intelligence of just enjoying the collaboration and being able to have humility about what you don't know and surrounding yourself with people who know (laughs) a lot more than you do. And boy, was that true. They knew so much more about George, but I feel like I could stand on their shoulders and I now know George. (laughs) I even call him George now. (laughs) Yeah, it must be a very different experience for you because when you're writing, I have to imagine that's a pretty solitary process. Have you enjoyed the collaboration of producing Washington? You know, I think, Ben, that's the real reason why this has been such a pleasure to go into films right now. I mean, I'm sure I'll find another book to write. And my husband was writing a book about the value of public service and uh, kind of an idealistic call to young people when he died a year and a half ago. And I'm hoping to finish that. 
But in the meantime, there's something about being able to be part of a team every day, because at least when my husband was there, the two of us together would be there writing, so it wasn't lonely. But now to work every day with, with these people who have an equal, intense feeling about what they want this to be and to go through all this, you know, the strains and the triumphs of it, um, it's a really large experience that anybody who works in an organization knows, but it's been so long since I've done one that I've really enjoyed that as much as anything and makes me want to do more. We've got a chance for a movie about Ida Tarbell, one of the characters in Bully Pulpit, oh, um, yeah. to be made by Amazon, actually. And oh, wow. um, we've at the stage where there's a couple scripts that have been done, which we think are really good, and hopefully that might happen. So we feel like we're just getting started. I just wish I were 20 instead of my age because I'm really <laughs> enjoying this a lot. Maybe they'll yeah. just make me younger than I am to keep doing it. <laughs> well, tell us about some of the talent that you've lured to your miniseries. You've got the great Jeff Daniels narrating, and people will, of course, recognize the man playing George Washington on screen from Netflix, The Crown. Well, what was what was fun about getting Jeff Daniels was that um, I had met him in the course of talking to him about a possible project on Franklin Roosevelt. He would be a perfect Franklin Roosevelt. And oh, then yeah. went and then went to he invited us to um, to kill a mockingbird, and then when we asked him about being narrator, he said yes at once. And it's, it's he's got a wonderful voice for this, so that was pretty great. And then we were able to get some of my fellow historians, and many of them already had been gotten by the history people, but to add to the list and President Clinton and General Powell. So when yeah. I called General Powell, it was it turned out to be such a wonderful addition because he could talk about what it was like for George Washington to have to discipline the troops as hard as it is to have to sometimes hang deserters to make an example for the team and how difficult that is for a war leader. He was able to talk about how it changed George Washington in one of those early battles with Braddock when he saw a 1,000 people die out of 1,500 and never again would war be an adventure. This is the worst. This was the worst is what Powell said. And then President Clinton offering the insight, even just from his personal experience, of what it was like to lose a father when he was young and have to be more independent as he was because he had to, there was a strain with his single mother having to keep up the farm and he didn't have time to putter around. And then understanding that he had certain strengths and he was worried always about not having had a lot of formal schooling. Like, you know, Adams had gone to Harvard and Jefferson had gone to William and Mary, and he was not even able to go to London for schooling as his half-brothers were because his father had died when he was 11. And yet he then put these kind of people around him as his advisors, and when he chose to motivate the troops at the crossing of Delaware, instead of making his own motivational speech, he used the words of Thomas Paine, knowing that Thomas Paine was a better writer and orator than he was. So all of that came from Clinton's understanding. Um, so it was great. And he understood what it was like to be a president and the anxieties of the presidency. So it rounded out, I think, the show in a lot of ways that I was very glad to be part of. Now, you've written a number of books about U.S. presidents. What appealed to you about telling this story through a miniseries rather than doing another presidential biography? Well, I, you know, I think part of it is, as I was saying, that there's the combination of film and and interviews that I think allow you to bring a, a person to life, mm. and especially in Washington's cases. We have so few pictures of him, right. and the pictures don't really suggest a lot of movement in his face, partly because he was always conscious of his teeth. 
He had had that tooth disease and had a lot of other teeth in his mouth that not were wood. They were not wooden. They were actual teeth from animals or from other people. Ooh. But conscious of that, he didn't smile a lot. So it's hard to see inside of a living person. And then you see him on Mount Rushmore. So the chance to have Nicholas playing him um, as young George Washington and bringing to life expressions on his face and anxiety and pleasure and meeting Martha and dancing. And as Joe Ellis said, and he was a stud, you know, you see him as a stud among, you know, so much taller and bigger than most people his age. I think that was part of it. But I think what I was saying before was it was just such a great was 18 months of collaboration, really intense collaboration. Now, it takes it took me like 10 years to write um, The Civil War or, or Franklin and Eleanor. Mm -hmm. So, But this intensity almost, almost made it the same length of time. <laughs> but I just felt I was learning it every step along the way from all these other people who knew so much more about making documentaries or about George Washington than I did. So I felt like I was back in school, and it was a great experience. We know from history class the bullet points of his life, the highlights, uh, crossing the Delaware, winning the revolution, his presidency, maybe his farewell address. But the average American knows almost nothing about his personal life. For instance, what you just mentioned, that he was raised by a single mother or his failures, his insecurities, the grudges that he held, all of these things that really made him a human being. No, I think that's absolutely right. And and what, what I think the film smartly does, it starts with his first mission um, for the British, for the king, um, which is the British and the French are fighting, of course, during that period of time before the formal outbreak of the French and Indian War. And, and you just watch him really in chaos, not knowing what to do. He's only 22 years old. And it turns out to be a terrible failure and misjudgments, and he doesn't handle it well. And then yet you see him in later battles where he understands what's happening more, and he looks ahead and sees what's the next step. And then you see him learning from these things and taking more responsibility. So that's the way you get a human look at a person when they have their warts exposed to you and their failures, and yet they somehow get through. They have resilience, as he did through adversity and through failure. And for me, I think one of the most interesting revelations in the miniseries was how much of Washington's desire to join and lead the revolution goes back way before things like the Stamp Act and the Boston Massacre to these very, very old grudges that he carried for years against the crown. How personal was this for him? Yeah, you know, you think, in fact, one of the historians said, you know, that it's an interesting thing that if the British had allowed him to become a British officer um, and given him what his experience should have allowed him to get, recognition for his, his strategic understandings, he might have been loyal to the British and this might never have happened. I mean, that's what's fascinating. At a certain point, he understood the strategy that the frontier was in chaos and he argued that the British had to attack Fort Duquesne. And he goes to Philadelphia to say to a top guy, this is what should be done. It's, it's risking insubordination. And he's just dismissed by the guy, you know, like, who are you to be telling me, the British, what to do? Finally, a year later, they do that very thing he suggests, but he gets no credit for it. And yet, and then the French and Indian War comes to an end and he leaves the army. And then he comes back in, obviously, as a continental officer. And then they he was given land as part 
part of the French and Indian service, but then they pass a proclamation, again before the Stamp Act and all these other acts in 1763, that that land will no longer be allowed to be used. And it's for good reason. The British want to not have any more turmoil with the Indians. The French and Indian Wars cost them so much, but it's, it's certainly a, a burden on the colonists who felt it was their land. And then he becomes part of the general swell of people turning against Britain when the Stamp Act comes and the Intolerable Acts and the closing of the port of Boston and the massacre, and of course, Lexington and Concord. But you're right, it it starts earlier than that. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more when we come back in just a minute. Wave is a free, easy-to-use financial software that helps freelancers, consultants, and small business owners make, move, and manage their money, bringing them closer to financial success through accounting, invoicing, payments, and payroll. Just like Chris. Chris started his own business three years ago and has been using Wave ever since. He was never confident about the financial aspects of running his own business, but since discovering Wave... He was relieved to find a service that made invoicing and payments so straightforward. Wave's free accounting, receipt management, and invoicing tools give your business the professionalism it deserves. Have employees? Wave can pay them directly and automate your payroll tax filings. Payroll helps business owners like Sean. Sean felt like he was dealing with taxes and payroll every day, and making sure everyone got paid took away the enjoyment of running his business. Having automatic deductions with payroll let him get back to doing what he enjoys most. I only recently started using Wave. I was tired of the hassle of invoicing, chasing clients for payment, payroll, accounting, tax compliance. It's a headache that I just didn't need. I just wanted to be able to focus on my podcast. That's why I love Wave's easy-to-use accounting software. It's simple, intuitive, and it saves me time. In fact, now I'm using Wave for my payroll and invoicing as well. Bottom line, Wave simplifies my life. It's time to ditch the Excel spreadsheets, shoeboxes full of receipts, and lost invoices and start growing your business. Set your business up for financial success by signing up for your free account today at waveapps.com kick. That's waveapps.com kick. something that I think often gets overlooked about Washington, which is this fascinating dichotomy of this man who was unbelievably ambitious from a very early age. He wanted to be a great land baron and desperately craved status and fortune. But at the same time, he also had his personal code of conduct that dictated that he be humble and not really campaign for something like becoming general of the Continental Army or president. It must have been a very difficult tightrope for him to walk. Uh, How do you reconcile those two sides of his personality? Yeah, no question. In fact, I think when we think of ambition, sometimes it's seen as a negative thing, but the drive for success and the ambition to succeed is absolutely essential in anybody's success. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen that in all the leaders that I've studied, and especially among a lot of those people during this era in time, their ambitions were huge. I mean, it was eventually, once he gets into the war and gets into the presidency, then that whole founding fathers, their ambition is to be remembered by history. They're thinking at a much larger level. But at some Mm -hmm. point, that ambition for self does become an ambition for something greater. But you're right, it's a tightrope at times. Like when he goes to the 
first um, continental congress, he arrives in his military uniform. <laughs> you know, so that's right. not um, an accident. You know, he's he's able to say, you know, no, I guess it's the second one he goes to. He's able to say, you know, I am the one with the experience, even though he's not campaigning to become the leader of the continental army. No, but that military uniform is a symbol of it. So he's very strategic mm-hmm. about doing these things. But then the great thing, as as Mr. Powell, General Powell, points out is he could have been a king when the revolution is won. Almost always a general who wins the revolution just steps into the power, and then that would be the end of whatever republic they were going to try and create. But instead he goes back to Mount Vernon, and that's when George III said, you know, my God, if he really did that, then he's the greatest guy in the world. And then again, after two terms, he could have stayed on for a third, fourth until he died. And then we would have had a very different presidency than the one that basically became a two-term presidency with the exception of FDR in those two terms during the war. And talking about his grand ambition to become a moneyed land baron, one thing the film points out is just how much that ambition was tied to slavery. If he wanted to be a success, he had to have slaves. Having land without slaves to work the land was practically useless. Absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the things that that one of the historians says, you know, you'll be inevitably disappointed when you see the letters that he writes about the slaves and how important they are for his land. And they to get land without slaves, without the p- slaves which he considered property, would make, you, just as you say, the, the land useless. And, and so those are the things you wish were different, obviously. But, and on the other hand, he's the only one of the Virginia dynasty, even though he waited until he died to free the slaves, and even though he waited until Martha died for their emancipation to be re- realized, um, none of the other none of the other great founding fathers in the Virginia dynasty did the same thing. So, so he does make a movement toward ending slavery, but very late in his life. And and again, you you look at it from the context of our time, and and you wish it were different. But that means wishing that the whole slavery issue were different, and that we hadn't right. had the original sin of slavery. And he's part of that world that lives at that time. Yeah, in recent years, founding fathers like George Washington and Jefferson have received a lot more scrutiny for having been slaveholders. Do you have any advice for how we confront that terrible reality in our American heroes? I think in any time, you know, it's important for an historian to know what the ideals of the country are so you know that holding slavery is in direct contradiction to the Declaration of Independence and the Mm -hmm. ideals of liberty. And yet, on the other hand, you have to understand how they thought at the time. You have to put them back in their time and not in our time. I mean, there are are things that Abraham Lincoln said that, you know, he couldn't believe in intermarriage. He didn't think that blacks and whites could actually be equal in this country in the same way that he wished they were. And he thought maybe they'd be better off being colonized somewhere else so they'd have a free start somewhere else. And you just think... Abraham Lincoln is saying these things. And then on the other hand, you see him emancipating the slaves um, with the Emancipation Proclamation. And you see Frederick Douglass talking to him and saying, no, no black person was ever treated more equally by a white person than I felt by Abraham Lincoln. So it's a very complex thing. And I think as historians, it cannot be just that we look and say, well, then that undoes them if they didn't do what we wish they had done. You just have to see them in their time. You feel sad that it didn't reach them the way it might have reached other people who understood abolitionism in the North, but they were part of a world, and we have to try and understand that world as well. You mentioned earlier that you came to this project with a less detailed knowledge of George Washington's life than some of the other presidents about whom you've written. When you were making this miniseries and learning about him, what came as the biggest surprise to you? 
Well, you know, I think what most surprised me was that I didn't imagine that I would feel emotionally connected to him because things that I did know, I mean, I taught a presidency course um, for years, so I obviously had a few lectures on George Washington, and I'd seen pictures of him, but the pictures never produced a person who you could feel connected to somehow, partly because of that never smiling, but partly because of the way they took pictures in that time. So what was most surprising is that normally when I live with one of my guys for a lot of years, after six or seven years, I feel like I know them so well that as they're reaching their death, I don't want them to die because I want them to stay with me. And I wasn't sure I was going to feel that about George Washington. But because of the way the whole film is produced, because you've lived through those early years, because you've watched him grow, because you've seen him lead the colonial army and then go back home, you've seen him have difficulties in the presidency, being hurt by the partisanship of his era, and yet not undoing free press. And again, seeing him want to go back home after that, when he only got a couple years to live after the presidency was over, I just felt so sad. I wanted him to have more time on that Mount Vernon estate, which gave him such solace. And when he died, I really felt it. So I guess what surprised me was that even though he's not really one of my guys, the same way he is of of those historians who've spent their lives studying him, I feel like he almost became one of my guys by working on this mm-hmm. with such intensity over these last 18 months. So that was a real joy to behold. I love that you refer to your subjects as your guys. You really seem to have a personal relationship with them. No, you do feel that way when you wake up with them in the morning and you go to bed with them at night. And George would have been (laughs) a natural person to want to study. It was just too overwhelming. There were so many wonderful Mm -hmm. biographies about him. And it was hard enough for me to do Lincoln with 14,000 biographies about him. And he was further back in time than I knew. I was mostly 20th century. But to go even further back in time and to to know that all these great biographies have been written would have made it probably an impossible task for me to think that I could write a biography about George Washington without spending at least another 20 years maybe. Um, so this was, this was just wonderful to be able to grow in my understanding of him through my fellow historians, through the filmmakers, through the mm-hmm. actors. And I feel like, as I say, I he, I feel like if I were going to bring Lincoln and Teddy and Franklin and LBJ together, I think maybe I could persuade George to come into the group and we could all talk together. <laughs> and I appreciate what you said about grieving them when you come to the end of their lives, because George Washington met an especially tragic end. He had a gruesome, oh my God. painful death, probably even worse than Lincoln. Oh, yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, too, to know that in today's world, antibiotics would have cured the infection in his throat. But, um, mm-hmm. but the death, I mean, which, which is recorded. I mean, we know, you know, the words he said. We know it was torture. We know that he was the one who wanted the bloodletting, which is, just seems so impossible to imagine how they ever thought that bloodletting was going to cure somebody's disease. And you watch that happening. And, um, yeah, there's, there, there's, there's a, a visceral part of that death that you see that mm-hmm. you're right. With, with Lincoln, it's the shot, and then he's not going to have consciousness again. So this, this is a longer, drawn-out process. And last time we spoke, we talked about your book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, which focused on Lincoln, LBJ, Teddy, and Franklin Roosevelt. I can't imagine a more turbulent time, the American Revolution and the beginnings of this country. What are the leadership lessons one can draw from George Washington? I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we forget because of the victories that are won 
you know, this is one of the things that um, Barbara Tuckman wrote about that mattered so much to me. She said, even if you're writing about a war as a narrative historian, you have to imagine to yourself you do not know how that war ended so you can carry your readers with you every step along the way, only knowing what the people at the time knew. When you go back to those early days of the revolution, um, it didn't seem possible that this ragtab army, which he had to rebuild everywhere he went, he has a new militia. They have to be trained. Half of them are de deserting. They're going. They're just running home when they can. He has to teach them how to fire. He has to teach them to listen to commands. And it seems like an impossible task against this huge British army. And so it certainly was turbulent. But he learned. He learned how to build them up. Finally, he even in the early days of the French and Indian War, he developed almost a ranger's unit among his troops by the constant discipline, by being tough, as Powell said, you know, by, you know, letting the people who disciplined, who needed discipline, who were trying to run away from battle be executed. I mean, it's hard to see that. Um, but as Powell said, that's necessary. And then you watch him sort of strategically understanding how the troops had to have a sense of purpose. You know, that's why he read the the pain words before the crossing of the Delaware, as I was saying. Um, it's why the Declaration of Independence came at exactly the right time when the British Armada was here. That's when luck sometimes happened, just as the mm -hmm. British Armada reaches our shores to clearly overwhelm the colonial troops. The Declaration is printed, and everybody's reading it aloud, you know, and it gives a cause that the British didn't have to fight for their own land. So, um, yes, I, it was an extraordinary time. You watch him surrounding himself both as a, a leader in the, in the war and then as president with people who are, are able to challenge him and question him and give him advice, which he sometimes takes and goes in the direction they suggested rather than where he thought he should go. And you see humility developing over time when he reads that great letter where his glasses need to be put on at Newburgh when there's a potential military coup to get their back pay, and he apologizes to them, shows them his vulnerability, just as FDR showed his vulnerability at, at Warm Springs. You know that that connects you to people. You watch him at Valley Forge, sleeping in the same area as the soldiers, sharing the, the, the terrible supplies, you know, not, not eating other than what they're eating, all of which are the lessons of leadership, you know, of being at one with the people and being able to lead them in a direction where they need to go. So it was mm -hmm. fun to just see, oh, my God, this guy fits in. You know, these, these <laughs> traits that are, they're not just traits of presidents, actually. I mean, what I tried to do in leadership in turbulent times was to look at the traits of leaders in any field. It could be private life. It could be public life because they're human traits. That's what it is. I mean, that's what human nature is, is how do you deal with human nature? That's what you are as a leader. Now, there are so many common legends associated with George Washington, from chopping down the cherry tree to skipping a silver dollar across the Potomac River. How do you separate the myths from the man? Well, you know, I think we know that what happened in the beginning was, especially by this book by Parson Weems, wanting to make him a hero, he just created heroic moments. And, and over time, they were able to interview people who knew or recreate that you couldn't skip the coin across the river. It was too <laughs> wide. Um, we know now from the experiences of what happened in that early battle with the half king that after he came out of that battle, he lied about what had happened in the battle. So we know that he did indeed tell a lie. I'm still not sure about the cherry tree. <laughs> I mean, I, I, we, we know that he didn't have wooden teeth as we thought he had. 
you know, that they were actual real teeth that were bought from other people. So what's important are the, the real truths. This is so true about human nature. It's why fiction sometimes isn't even as good as facts, because the real human story is always more dramatic than the ones that are made mm-hmm. up. I mean, the real things he did, you know, to to mobilize those troops after those terrible losses, to cross the Delaware, you know, to give the troops hope when they still didn't have supplies at Valley Forge are so much more meaningful than chopping down a terry tree or, you know, right. or, or, or somehow being able to skip a coin across the Delaware River. <laughs> but I'll tell you, Doris, I actually had Adam Savage from Mythbusters on the show a while back, and he put that to the test. And oh. he said you can actually skip a silver dollar no across the kidding. Potomac. Well, I don't know if George Washington could have, but he well, said it he was possible. pretty strong. You know, as Joella yeah. said, he was a stud, so maybe he did. <laughs> oh, I have to rethink this now because <laughs> the yeah. other people I heard who tried to do it, maybe they just weren't as strong as our your guy. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and I had a lot of listener questions about some of these common myths, and I want to ask you real quickly about a couple of them. Uh, was George Washington one of America's first marijuana growers? Oh my God, I don't, I don't know. You know what? Okay. It, it's not crazy, only because after the tobacco crops were being so um, used by the British over in England, and they would choose whatever price they wanted to pay for them, and then you had a credit for whatever you mm-hmm. wanted to buy from them, and it was a whole system that made it hard for the planters here to gain any kind of wealth, and George fell behind in debt. He decided to change his crops to go from tobacco to grain to corn to wheat. So I don't know whether one of the little hills might have been used for marijuana. Yeah. Yeah, you're teaching me things, but he was an entrepreneur, so maybe so. I have a feeling that, if anything, it was probably a matter of him growing hemp, which probably would have been for entirely different purposes. <laughs> I, I, I don't I know. suspect that is yeah. the answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about the powdered wig? Did George Washington wear a powdered wig? Yes. I mean, um, you know what's, what's, what I love about the film is that in the early days, the wig is pulled back in a ponytail, and he really mm-hmm. looks handsome. I mean, that's, that's where I have this feeling now of a handsome young George. No wonder they wanted to dance with him at the dances. And later <laughs> then, when the ponytail goes, and it just sort of sticks out on the side... <laughs> If that's a wig later, then he was better off with the ponytail early on. If we were a hairdresser, I'd tell him, just stick to that. Yeah. Well, Washington airs this coming President's Day weekend. And I have to ask you, because this is something that's stuck in my craw for a long time. President's Day. Isn't it a cop outdoors? Without a question. Doesn't Washington, the father of the nation, deserve a holiday of his own and Lincoln, too, instead of this generic President's Day? I I couldn't agree with you more. I understand the benefit of having a longer weekend, but there's something about celebrating each president and remembering them so that in schools Mm -hmm. we're talking not just about all the presidents. Are we going to lump in, you know? Um, Franklin Pierce and Millard Fillmore and Buchanan <laughs> with um, right. Lincoln, Washington. I think we should go back to Lincoln and Washington. And I, the third national holiday that I think is around this should be Election Day. I would argue so strongly, especially after what we're thinking about right now. Why not make it as easy as possible for people to vote? Um, and they should have that day off and vote. So I would go back to Washington and Lincoln, and Election Day, and that would be good. And Martin Luther King Day would stay as well. Uh, I completely agree. I think we need to start a movement, especially for Election Day. Me too. Well, before we go, what's up next for you? Are you going to be producing other miniseries, movies? Well, I hope so. I mean, um, Beth Lasky and I, this is our first 
production to be involved in this miniseries on George Washington. It's been so much fun that we've also got a possibility of a, a movie about Ida Tarbell, one of the heroines right. of Bully Pulpit, who did the investigative reporting that brought down Standard Oil. And a mm. script, several scripts have been written, um, several drafts of the same script for Amazon. And there's a real hope that that might be made into a movie. Right. And then we've got a bunch of other things we'd like to do as well. So it's a Terrific. fun world. It's a collaborative world, unlike the solitary world of writing. And especially, <laughs> to be honest, now that my husband is no longer alive, who I could write with together in our house, to be able to work with other people right. as part of a team has really been great. Well, just promise you're not going to go all Hollywood on us, Doris. Oh, no. I still have to finish the book my husband was writing writing first. He was writing a book about the value of public service before he right. died, and I'm going to finish that first. And there'll be another book when I get to it in my head somewhere along. I'd like to write about a woman somehow along the line. <laughs> well, again, the three-part miniseries Washington begins Sunday, February 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only on the History Channel. Doris Kearns Goodwin, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I'm so glad to be with you again. We'll do this again sometime. Thanks again to Doris Kearns Goodwin for coming on the show. Don't miss her three-part miniseries, Washington, beginning Sunday, February 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only on the History Channel. Today's episode is brought to you by Kronos. Kronos provides HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support, motivate, and engage them. They put HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. Learn more about Kronos HR Payroll Talent and Time at Kronos.com slash HR Swagger. That's Kronos.com slash HR Swagger. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis and thanks for listening to KickAss News. KickAssNews.